0: That silence could only be interpreted as a tacit, if not wholehearted, endorsement of the status quo. But to a kid who didn't yet understand the connection of sports to culture and politics, these were incomprehensible complexities at the time. To me back then, the bear was just a football coach. Early in the morning of October 17, 1982, a Sunday and my 13th birthday, my father woke me and told me to put on a sweater and some khakis, to tuck my shirt in, and to get a move on. He had a friend who owned a local lawnmower dealership that sponsored the Bear Bryant Show, the Sunday morning post-game recap that enthralled Tide fans the way televised papal sermons seized the attention of devout Catholics, and the friend had managed to get me invited on the set. I didn't know this at the time, but I had an inkling where we might be headed. Besides church, little else of importance happened early on Sunday mornings in Birmingham, and I was fairly sure that my birthday present wasn't going to consist of a morning of hymn singing at Independent Presbyterian. But the other possibility, that I was going to stand face-to-face with the most revered man in the state of Alabama and the architect of more joyful Saturdays in my young life than I could count, was too terrifying to contemplate. I had an exaggerated view of the man. Once in grade school, I looked at a picture of Mount Rushmore and noted what a poor job the sculptor had done of capturing the bear's likeness and that he'd forgotten the hat. We rode in silence through the empty streets, past the Tudor and clabbered houses, past the red clay outcroppings near Birmingham's iron ore seam, and up the winding road to the television studios, where Bryant taped his show for broadcast that afternoon. As soon as I got out of the car, I spotted Bryant's bodyguard, a black university policeman named Billy Varner, who was sitting at the door in front of the studio, a wide-brimmed trooper's hat low over his eyes. I'd seen him standing on the sideline of every Alabama game I'd been to, and in almost every television shot or photograph I'd ever seen of Bryant. The bear couldn't be more than a few feet away. How's the coach? my father asked as we walked by, using the man's proper title, as all Tide fans knew to do. Not too good, Varner replied. The day before, Alabama had lost to Tennessee, something that hadn't happened since my first birthday in 1970. Barner had the Sunday morning Birmingham news at his feet. The outcome of the game was front-page news. Bryant was 69, and even as a kid, I sensed something ominous about the loss. It broached the unspeakable possibility that perhaps the old coach was losing his stuff. I walked through two sets of large steel doors, and there he was, a glowering hulk of a man with a voice so deep it seemed to vibrate the floor, he was sitting behind a desk like a news anchor, on a sky-blue stage, hung with signs advertising Coca-Cola and Golden Flake potato chips. His gray hair was slicked back. His cheeks were still red from the game-day sun. But his face was fixed in a steely grimace, and his eyes were bloodshot and wet, as though he hadn't slept. The bear looked like he was grieving. I felt a pang of resignation. My one chance to meet the bear, and his mood was positively black. I sat on a stool behind the cameraman as Bryant mumbled gravely through the show and took the blame for each fumble, each missed tackle, each dropped ball. This was the bear's way, and it bothered me tremendously. I knew exactly who had fumbled, and it hadn't been Bear Bryant. After the taping, Bryant got up slowly from his chair and stood on the set looking dour and preoccupied. He turned around and noticed me, then approached and stuck out his hand in a distracted, obligatory way. We shook and his pillowy palm seemed to engulf my arm. "'I want to play football,' was all I could think to say. "'I'm sure you'll do fine at it, son,' he said, and that was all. This wasn't going to be the day to get motivational platitudes from the bear. I wasn't even disappointed. At the age of 13, I knew enough about football and human emotions to feel badly for the old man. Losing to Tennessee, I figured, was hell on all of us. My father asked Brian if he wouldn't mind posing with me for a picture. Without so much as a word, the bear put his arm around my shoulder and forced an unconvincing smile. He stood there in front of the Coca-Cola sign in this uncomfortable pose, as my father fiddled with his camera, stalling in the hope that Bryant might loosen up. After 45 nerve fraying seconds, the bear leaned over to me and thundered, Son, I don't think your father knows what the hell he's doing. We both laughed, and in the photo that now hangs on my office wall, we look like old cronies sharing an inside joke. Two months later, Bryant retired, and fulfilling his prophecy that he die without football, he succumbed to a heart attack a month later. I skipped school the day of his funeral and made my mother drive me to Elmwood Cemetery for the burial. Thousands of Alabamians lined the 45-mile stretch on the interstate between the university campus in Tuscaloosa and the cemetery in Birmingham. Bryant's hearse and the three-mile procession of cars and buses behind took farewell laps around Bryant-Denise Stadium on campus in Tuscaloosa and Legion Field in Birmingham before heading to the cemetery, where I stood with 10,000 other mourners. Each Alabama win had served as a kind of temporal hash mark on the green turf of my youth, and after Bryant died, I felt that field had turned brown. It took getting away from Alabama to develop a little perspective on being a fan, and perspective came quickly when I arrived at Columbia University in New York in 1987, coincidentally during what would become by my junior year the longest losing streak in the history of college football. The Lions lost an astonishing 44 games in a row, beating Northwestern's previous record by 10 games. An entire class of players graduated without achieving so much as a tie. It was quite an adjustment to go from counting up a record number of wins under the bear to the inexorable accumulation of a record number of losses at Columbia. And just as disconcerting, no one at Columbia seemed to mind such a terrible streak. Columbia was a kind of inverse Alabama, where 90% of Alabamians had a favorite team, a similar percentage at Columbia seems not to know the rules. In Alabama, life more or less came to a halt on football Saturdays. In New York, Almost no one went to Columbia games except for their comedic value or else to witness some sort of losing milestone. Throngs of Columbia students crammed onto a New Jersey Transit local for the 1987 Princeton-Columbia game just to see what they hoped would be the loss that propelled Columbia past Northwestern's miserable streak. The Columbia fans, if you can call them that, wore Princeton orange and black and cheered wildly when Princeton scored. Some students unfurled a huge banner that read, Go Columbia! Beat Northwestern! When Princeton won, as we knew they would, the Columbia students toasted the loss with champagne, celebrating the fact that we were, indisputably, the worst team ever. I can trace my first feelings of self-consciousness about being a sports fan to that cool October Saturday in New Jersey, because here's the thing. I wanted Columbia to win. Try as I might, I couldn't hope to lose. I couldn't mock football. I was not a sports Dadaist. There were other revelations, and usually they came care of some form of public ridicule. I was ribbed for hanging the photograph of the bear in me on my dorm room wall. Actually, at first I wasn't ribbed at all. No one knew who the old man was. They assumed he was my grandfather. When his identity was discovered, the ridicule began. I don't remember what was more unsettling taking endless flack for having a picture of a football coach on my wall, or the realization that there were people roaming the world who at close range could not recognize Bear Bryant. Once I spent three hours listening to an Alabama-Auburn game on the telephone. There was no broadcast of the game in New York, so I called my parents in Alabama and had them lay the receiver next to a radio. When my friends realized what I was doing with a telephone next to my ear for three hours, well, suffice it to say there was more ridicule when an undefeated Alabama team lost to Auburn my junior year, I anesthetized myself with a steady drip of keg Budweiser. The next morning, I woke up on my dorm room bed, fully clothed and in the fetal position. My roommates reported that I had taken refuge there at some point in the fourth quarter and had wept myself to sleep. I wasn't in any shape to dispute this version of events, but again, was it so strange? At some point, I began to get the clear impression that it was strange. The problem wasn't that others thought my behavior was pathological. It was that I myself began to think something was a little off. I'd gone to Columbia to study humanism and the great books, to become a rational being. Crying yourself to sleep over the failure of a group of people you've never met to defeat another group of people against whom you have no legitimate quarrel in a game you don't play no less is not rational. It didn't make me feel any better about myself that while I was obsessed over college football, others were obsessed with pro football, baseball, basketball, and soccer. At the time, I failed to grasp how much we had in common. One of the most comforting experiences for anyone who considers himself weird in some way is to find other people in the world who are, in the same way, weirder. For me, this experience took place plainly enough, car-